Chapter Twenty Six of the Sign of Silence by William de This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty Six Shows Expert Methods. It being the luncheon hour, Fremy and myself ate our meal at the highly popular restaurant, the Tavern Joseph, close to the Boers, where the cooking is perhaps the best in Brussels, and where the cosmopolitan who knows where to eat usually makes for when in the Belgian capital. After our coffee, cigarettes, and a triple-sec each, we strolled round to the general post-office. As we approached that long flight of granite steps I knew so well, a poor-looking, ill-dressed man with a pinch of poverty upon his face and his coat buttoned tightly against the cold edged up to my companion on the pavement and whispered a word, afterwards hurrying on. "'Our interesting friend has not been here yet,' the detective remarked to me. We will have a talk with the clerk at the Poste Restante. Entering the great hall, busy as it is all day, we approached the window where letters were distributed from A to L, and where sat the same pleasant, fair-haired man sorting letters. "'Bonjour, monsieur,' he exclaimed when he caught sight of Fremy. "'What weather, eh?' The great detective returned his greetings, and then putting his head further into the window so that others should not overhear, said in French, I am looking for an individual, an Englishman named Bryant, and am keeping watch outside. He is wanted in England for a serious offence. Has he been here? Bryant, repeated the clerk thoughtfully. Yes, said Fremy, and then I spelt the name slowly. The clerk reached his hand to the pigeonhole wherein were letters for callers whose names began with B, and placing them against a little block of black wood on the counter before him, looked eagerly through while we watched intently. Once or twice he stopped to scrutinize an address, but his fingers went on again through the letters to the end. Nothing, he remarked laconically, replacing the packet in the pigeonhole. But there has been correspondence for him. I recollect a thin-faced man with gray hair and clean-shaven. Yes, I remember him distinctly. He always called just before the office was closed. When did he call last? asked Fremy quickly. The night before last, I think, was the man's answer. A lady was with him, a rather stout English lady. We both started. Did the lady ask for any letters? Yes, but I forget the name. Petrie is her right name, I interrupted. Then I suggested to Fremy. Asked the other clerk to look through the letter P. No, monsieur, exclaimed the fair-haired employee. The name she asked for was in my division. It was not P. Then she must have asked for a name that was not her own, I said. And it seems very much as though we have lost the gang by a few hours, Fremy said disappointedly. My own opinion is that they left Brussels by the Orient Express last night. They did not call at the usual time yesterday. They may come this evening, I suggested. "'Certainly they may. We shall, of course, watch,' he replied. "'When the man and woman called the day before yesterday,' continued the employee, "'there was a second man, a dark-faced Indian with them, I believe. He stood some distance away and followed them out. It was his presence which attracted my attention and caused me to remember the incident.' Fremy exchanged looks with me. I knew he was cursing his fate which had allowed the precious trio to slip through his fingers. Yet the thought was gratifying that when the express ran into the great West Bahnhof at Vienna, the detectives would at once search for the fugitives. My companion had told me that by eight o'clock we would know the result of the inquiry, and I was anxious for that hour to arrive. 
Already Fremy had ordered search to be made of arrivals at all hotels and pensions in the city for the name of Bryant. Therefore we could do nothing more than possess ourselves in patience. So we left the post-office, his poverty-stricken assistant remaining on the watch, just as I had watched in the cold on the previous night. With my companion I walked round to the big café Metropole on the boulevard, and over our box, at a table where we could not be overheard, we discussed the situation. That big café, one of the principal in Brussels, is usually deserted between the hours of three and four. At other times it is filled with businessmen discussing their affairs, or playing dominoes with that rattle which is characteristic of the foreign café. "'Why is it,' I asked him, "'that your chief absolutely refuses to betray the identity of the girl Marie Brock?' The round-faced man before me smiled thoughtfully as he idly puffed his cigarette. Then, shrugging his shoulders, he replied, "'Well, monsieur, to tell the truth, there is a very curious complication.' In connection with the affair there is a scandal which must never be allowed to get out to the public. "'Then you know the truth, eh?' I asked. "'A portion of it, not all,' he replied. "'But I tell you that the news of the young lady's death has caused us the greatest amazement and surprise. We knew that she was missing, but never dreamed that she had been the victim of an assassin.' "'But who are her friends?' I demanded. "'Unfortunately I am not permitted to say,' was his response. When they know the terrible truth, they may give us permission to reveal the truth to you. Till then my duty is to preserve their secret. But I am all anxiety to know. I quite recognize that, Monsieur Royal, he said. I know how I should feel were I in your position. But duty is duty, is it not? I have assisted you, and I have given you a clue to the mystery, I protested and we on our part will assist you to clear the stigma resting upon the lady who is your promised wife, he said. Whatever I can do in that direction, monsieur may rely upon me. I was silent, for I saw that to attempt to probe further than the mystery of the actual identity of Marie Brock was impossible. There seemed a conspiracy of silence against me. But I would work myself. I would exert all the cunning and ingenuity I possessed, Nay, I would spend every penny I had in the world in order to clear my well-beloved of that terrible suspicion that by her hand this daughter of a princely house had fallen. Well, I asked at last, what more can we do? Ah, sighed the stout man, blowing a cloud of cigarette smoke from his lips and drawing his glass. What can we do? The Posta Restante is being watched, the records of all hotels and pensions for the past month are being inspected, and we have put a guard upon the Orient Express. No, we can do nothing, he said, until we get a telegram from Vienna. Will you call at the Prefecture of Police at eight o'clock tonight? I will be there to see you. I promised, then having paid the waiter, we strolled out of the café and parted on the boulevard, he going towards the North Station, while I went along in the opposite direction to the Grand. For the appointed hour I waited in greatest anxiety. What if the trio had been arrested in Vienna? That afternoon I wrote a long and encouraging letter to Frida, telling her that I was exerting every effort on her behalf, and urging her to keep a stout heart against her enemies, who now seemed to be in full flight. At last eight o'clock came, and I entered the small courtyard of the Prefecture of Police, where a uniformed official conducted me up to the room of Inspector Fremy. The big, merry-faced man rose as I entered, 
and placed his cigar in an ashtray. "'Bad luck, monsieur,' he exclaimed in French. "'They left Brussels in the Orient, as I suspected, all three of them. Here is the reply.' And he handed me an official telegram in German, which translated into English read, "'To Prefect of Police, Brussels, from Prefect of Police, Vienna.' In response to telegram of today's date, the three persons described left Brussels by Orient Express, traveled to Vels, and there left the train at 2.17 this afternoon. Telephonic inquiry of police at Vels results that they left at 4.10 by the express for Paris. I have already telegraphed to Paris, Fremy said, but there is time, of course, to get across to Paris and meet the express from Constantinople on its arrival there. Our friends evidently know their way about the continent. Shall we go to Paris? I suggested eagerly, anticipating in triumph their arrest as they alighted at the Gare de l'Est. I had travelled by the express from Vienna on one occasion about a year before, and remembered that it arrived in Paris about nine in the morning. With the permission of my chief, I will willingly accompany you, monsieur, replied the detective. And, leaving me, he was absent for five minutes or so while I sat gazing around his bare, official-looking bureau, where upon the walls were many police notices and photographs of wanted persons, rats de hotel, and other malefactors. Brussels is one of the most important police centers in Europe, as well as being the center of the political secret service of the powers. On his return, he said, Bien, monsieur, we leave the midi station at midnight and arrive in Paris at half past five. I will engage sleeping berths and I will telephone to my friend, Inspector Draco, at the prefecture, to send an agent of the Brigade Mobile to meet us. Non de Shaw, what a surprise it will be for the fugitives. But, he added, they are clever and elusive. Fancy, in order to go from Brussels to Paris, they travel right away into Austria, and with through tickets to Belgrade, too. Yes, they know the routes on the continent, the routes used by the international thieves, I mean. The Vels route by which they traveled is one of them. Then I left him promising to meet him at the station ten minutes before midnight. I had told Edwards I would notify him by wire any change of address, therefore on leaving the prefecture of police I went to the Grand and from there sent a telegram to him at Scotland Yard, telling him that I should call at the office of the inspector of police at the East Railway Station in Paris at ten on the following morning, if he had anything to communicate. All through that night we travelled on in the close stuffy wagon lit by way of Mons de Paris, arriving with some three hours and a half to spare, which we idled in one of the all-night cafés near the station, having been met by a little ferret-eyed Frenchman named Japet, who had been one of Fremy's subordinates when he was in the French service. Just before nine o'clock, after our café lay in the buffet, we walked out upon the long-arrival platform where the Orient Express from its long journey from Constantinople was due. It was a quarter of an hour late, but at length the luggage porters began to assemble, and with bated breath I watched the train of dusty sleeping-cars slowly draw into the terminus. In a moment Fremy and his colleagues were all eyes, while I stood near the engine, waiting for the result of their quest. But in five minutes the truth was plain. Fremy was in conversation with one of the brown-uniformed conductors, who told him that the three passengers we sought did join at Bell's but had left again at Munich on the previous evening. My heart sank. Our quest was in vain. They had again eluded us. "'I will go to Munich,' Fremy said at once. "'I may find trace of them yet.' 
and I will accompany you, I exclaimed eagerly. They must not escape us. But my plans were at once altered, and Fremy was compelled to leave for Germany alone, for at the police office at the station half an hour later I received a brief message from Edwards urging me to return to London immediately and stating that an important discovery had been made. So I drove across to the Gare du Nord and left for London by the next train. What, I wondered, had been discovered? End of chapter 26 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com